Welcome back to EW's Game of Thrones weekly podcast. This is bonus episode four of four, the finale, if you will, of talking about my book, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, the untold story of making Game of Thrones. I'm James Hibbard, and as always, I'm here with my podcast partner, Darren Franich. And now we're kind of moving into the the the, the home stretch here of, of, of the Thrones Odyssey. Yes, uh, the home stretch, the, the famously uncontroversial final seasons of Game of Thrones. <laughs> James, I'm not sure how you found any material at all uh, in covering that uh, part of the show in your book, because obviously there's very little to talk about. Um, no, James, uh, you know, as I've said before in this very special limited series, my enjoyment of your book uh, really only accelerated as we got closer and closer to the end of the series because, you know, as much as in the early parts of Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, I felt like you had so many great revelations about what went into the development of the show, um, what the kind of mood was in making the show in those early days when it was yeah. decidedly not the biggest show in the world. Um, everything really does change in your book and indeed in the world as an experienced Game of Thrones when you get to the last couple of seasons. Um, we talked a lot about the final season and the finale last season, disagreed about some things, uh, no, shortage, no shortage of opinion about the finale and about some choices that they made. Um, I'd be curious to know just for yourself, um, you know, again, my perception of you covering Game of Thrones was you finished covering the finale, you walked away in slow motion while everything exploded behind you uh, but in <laughs> fact you were just walking into the next uh exploding car this metaphor is, is falling apart all around me um to write this book uh, what was it like sort of uh circling around and talking to some of the people involved in game of thrones after the finale and the kind of wake of you know this huge pop culture moment that everybody on earth had an opinion about i mean most of them were actually pretty open to having opinions some had very strong opinions you know one producer just went right for it and said you know season eight has has you know the best content we've ever made and uh other ones were were more circumspect and uh so yeah everyone sort of had their own their own take the you know the the showrunners um were great about getting specific about why they made certain decisions in the final season. So they're, they're really good about sort of detailing, you know, why Bran, um, you know, why Bran should be king, why Danny had her dark turn, you know, why different endings were, were the right endings. Um, in terms of the finale criticism, they, they, they were, they were sort of, uh, they, they talked about that much less because, you know, and it's for a couple of reasons that they detail, um, that they speak to in the book, and I'll kind of extrapolate a bit further here. One of them is that they can't criticize anything without criticizing either other people who who were part of the process, or or you know, kind of damaging HBO. And HBO was this great content partner that basically gave them everything they wanted and needed. So even even if they criticize their own writing, they're they're essentially criticizing HBO's you know product that that they've left behind. That's you know presumably going to make you know lots of you know money and esteem for for HBO for many years on. And second of all, you know anything they criticize, you know feelings about things change opinions change you know they're they sort of very much think about the ending of the sopranos and how divisive that was and then it became 
more liked and accepted as, as time goes on. They know new people are going to discover the show and watch it you know, without the same level of, uh, you know, hype and expectation that went into the final season. So just strategically, it's not a very good idea to kind of validate any particular criticism when like 10 years from now, people won't even necessarily think about a specific thing. Um, or, or maybe they will. And, and the opinions that are out there now are, are pretty much, you know, what they're going to be. Um, but, you know, so, so for both those reasons, sort of strategically, they're reluctant to criticize. And I think that this comes across to some as arrogance sometimes when it's really more like, no, we rather people criticize us than do anything that hurts anybody else. You know, you yeah. know, you know, in, in, you know, just in the name of, of looking more, more humble. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, they have criticisms about their own work. There are things that are so specific that none of us watching would ever even think of. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, to, to be clear, I'm someone as a TV critic, I'm literally paid to like say my dumb opinions all day. Um, I've always thought that the best approach to something like this was the David Chase approach after finishing Sopranos, which was to essentially never say anything about it, <laughs> like until right. maybe the press tour for his Sopranos prequel, which is maybe another story. But, um, you know, I, I, I even so, James, I would just say that uh, for those people out there listening to this who've not already read your book, I did feel like there was a lot of insight offered into, you know, broader thoughts on the final season, broader thoughts on the finale. Um, you know, the idea that is kind of mentioned that is kind of Bran being the right ruler or the right person in the end. Um, you know, to me, that was interesting insight to get from the creative minds involved in the show. Because it was just kind of like a moment where I realized, oh, like, that was part of their instinct. And to me, one thing that I like about the entire saga, A Song of Ice and Fire, is the idea that the right people never wind up in charge. And so it was interesting that, you know, in their approach to it, they were kind of seeing the satisfaction index in one direction. And, you know, on some level, I think, and I'm intrigued to see if this is, you know, explored in the upcoming George R. R. Martin books or to what extent, you know, those books will pay off anything. Um, you know, it does seem as if the notion of anticlimax was not a part of the final season, that it was really meant to be big, huge, involve all the characters. That comes across most of all, of course, um, in uh, the section of your book where you cover the long night. You already covered the long night episode hugely in depth uh, when it aired. And even so, I kind of thought that returning to that um, in your book was so interesting because that's an episode that I do not like. And I think mm -hmm. that it, I think they just fundamentally made a, a, a hugely wrong creative decision in terms of how they chose to light it, how they chose to tell the story. Yeah. Even so, I just, I'm always so struck in your coverage of that episode, James, because that is one of the most intense production processes. I mean, setting aside an episode of television, I don't think there's any comparison, but that's one of the most intense production processes in terms of battlefield action epic storytelling in history, I think. I mean, you know, this is something that you, you mentioned this last year, but the point to point comparison is kind of the Helm's Deep stuff in Lord of the Rings. And that's cross cut with a lot of other things for a much shorter span of time. <laughs> like, so I, I don't know, like it was, I, 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 I've been to know, you know, stuff like that kind of one year out. Um, it must be kind of interesting, to, you know, to kind of look back on that or interesting to kind of see how people react to that stuff now. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. The, uh, the long night was, was 
brutal. Uh, uh, you know, you know, people think you know Martin's delay with the books and the show's struggle to pull off the final two seasons as being like two separate issues. And and I and as I the point I kind of make in the book is that they're kind of the same issue. You know, they're both kind of you know trying to pull off a very tricky final third of an epic story with so many characters and storylines and doing it in different mediums. And and just as the books kept getting bigger and bigger, the show you know, in terms, the books kept getting bigger and bigger in terms of characters and storylines. The show kept getting bigger and bigger in terms of, of, of its scale, in terms of, of its production until that final season, they were literally bumping up against the ceiling of what was physically possible. Um, the, uh, what they put into that season and what that they put into that episode, um, you know, like it or, 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 or not, was just incredibly grueling and difficult. And, uh, you know, they're out there, they, they were hit by two like back to back polar vortex storms with sub freezing, uh, temperatures. And they're out there every single night, um, to the early hours in the morning. And, uh, you know, for, for, for weeks and, and months at a time, you know, doing this and they're cold and they're freezing and they're doing the same action beats over and over again. And, you know, as people point out, if it wasn't the final season, uh, people would have quit that, you know, you know <laughs> that, that there would have been a mutiny halfway through the night shoots had, had it not had everybody not known this is like for, for the grand action climax of, of the show and we have to get it right. Um, so, I mean, pretty people really were at their breaking point. Um, and, uh, so, and, and in, in terms of the lighting, uh, there, there is one really good quote that I love. Uh, it's basically a quote of a quote, really. It's Brian Cogman. He's talking about the Lord of the Rings and a famous anecdote where somebody asked the director of photography, um, where does all the light come from during the, uh, during one of the, uh, scenes in, in, uh, she loves lair. And he said, you know, the same place as the music and, and Brian Cogman points out, you know, it's a perfectly valid answer, you know, but in Thrones, you know, they do source lighting, which means lighting that is always from um, a a realistic source of, illu- of illumination, whether it's moonlight or torches or sunlight. Um, you know, it's not that they don't have lights in the set, but the, the lighting kind of um, replicates what you would get in real life in that scene. So in Game of Thrones, if you shoot a battle at night, this is how you light it. And this is how they've lit so many... Uh, dark scenes in the show previously. What was unique is having that many dark scenes back to back in an episode that was so hugely anticipated. So it wasn't that they necessarily did anything they haven't done before, or it wasn't necessarily that they that they broke format. But what they did is they stacked so many of those scenes together, and then you combine that with like you know technical issues like like video compression when you have a bunch of people watching something at one time and TV set calibration and all these other things. And, and you end up with a, with a, with a viewing experience that a lot of people couldn't enjoy, which of course is, is never the goal. Yeah. And I mean, listen, the human eye perceives light differently from the way the cameras do. So all this talk about filming something realistically, like there is no such thing as realism because cameras are technological things. You have to kind of work within the constrictions of the technology to create something people can actually see. 
not going to dwell on that. Um, I, I, I do think that in a larger sense, what's interesting about The Long Night is that more than almost anything else in the show, you could maybe argue for Battle of the Bastards being another example, is truly a like, we are at an apex fantasy moment here. There is a one obvious bad guy who needs to be taken down and everyone else is a good guy. And I've always wondered if that also played a little bit into the sense of the final season as being different from what had come before, that there were, this, this was a show that had gone from having like a five ring circus of different uh, organizations, each some bad and some good to that kind of sense of the overall schism between, you know, who we're rooting for, who we're rooting against. Um, but that kind of leads into the second half of the final season where you think you're rooting against one queen and you find out that you are kind of also rooting against another queen, uh, Daenerys Targaryen, her big character turn, um, you know, James, of all of the, uh, I, I don't want to say controversies, but of all the kind of big topics that are covered in depth in a really cool way in your book, I do think you approach um, her turn in the penultimate episode uh, in kind of the most uh, intensive, panoramic, let's try to get all sides of, of this issue kind of way. Um, you know, we've talked about that. It's something that I think is still really at the core of a certain corner of the fandom's concerns about the final season. Um, but I'd love to know kind of, you know, in talking to Amelia Clark and talking to the people who were really closely involved in that storyline, um, what was that kind of postmortem like on this character who had been so central to the show as a heroic figure who then became death destroyer of worlds in the last couple of episodes? <laughs> yeah. I mean, one tidbit from the book that I particularly liked was, um, how the writers expected the season seven scene where Daenerys executed the Tarleys to be really disturbing and be this clear sign that she was on the wrong path. Your Grace, nothing scrubs bold notions from a man's head like a few weeks in a dark cell. I meant what I said. I'm not here to put men in chains. If that becomes an option, many will take it. I gave them a choice. They made it. But then they, one of them went to a viewing party and was shocked when everybody was like cheering. So the audience had kind of been on Team Dragon Queen for so long that they didn't really question what she did like the writers intended her to. So now you can read that as a show failed to make her arc more clear. And I, I think most people you know, feel that the arc wasn't made clear or wasn't, you know, they didn't take put enough beats in there to kind of earn that turn. Um, but to me, to me, it also says something about the way we, we, we follow leaders. I mean, this year has shown us many examples of people kind of blindly supporting their preferred teams and not really questioning them even when they do things that are clearly wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is a much larger topic that, uh, as, as you've just indicated, has a lot of real world layers to it that uh, we, are not, we are not necessarily super able to cover in depth on this uh, TV centric podcast. But I do feel like the kind of teamification of fandom in general, and specifically as relates to Game of Thrones, you know, there is that great moment in the finale when, uh, um, and it's probably the one part of the finale that I like. It's the one part where, where people talk about politics. Ooh, like, <laughs> that'll really get the people excited. Um, but uh, when Sam suggests, why don't we become a democracy and everyone laughs at that. We represent all the great houses, but whomever we choose, they won't just rule over lords and ladies. Maybe 
the decision about what's best for everyone should be left to, well, everyone. <laughs> Maybe we should give the dogs a vote as well. I'll ask my horse. <laughs> as a viewer in the present day, your response to that should kind of be like, oh, right, I hate all these people. <laughs> like, I mean, you, know, you know, like we're, we're allowed to feel good things about characters who otherwise represent things that we don't like. But I, I think about that moment a lot as maybe one other, you know, very explicit wink on the part of the storytellers, but, you know, nevertheless an indication that like, yeah, like it's all well and good to worship in a kind of culturally appropriate fan mm -hmm. way these characters, but also remember that like, you know, democracy is pretty cool. Um, uh, and they, and they, and they would disagree with, with, with that assessment. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. It, and, yeah. Which brings up Bran again, which, uh, you know, another point I made, you know, and I try to do much pontificating of my own in the book. I try to leave it to all the insiders to, to, to make their points. But one point that I made was that um, I think a lot of people focused on the Iron Throne as this prize to be won. And that makes sense because the characters, many of the characters were focused on it as a prize to be won. And even HBO's marketing kind of you know, played into the idea of who will end up on the Iron Throne and made it seem like a prize to be won but but in, in george r. r martin's books and and also in the show you know po power especially that level of power is is supposed to be a a burden and one that uh, tends to either draw people who are corruptible or or eventually corrupt people who who are on it and in that way uh the iron throne is really like like the one ring in lord of the rings they're they're both these these sort of quest items that are actually corruptive and and that cannot be be wielded and both of them also end up with the same fate both of them end up being destroyed by the fire in which they were made in terms of the one ring back to mountain doom and in terms of the iron throne back to, you know, to dragonfire you know it's just funny james because when you made that point um in the book it really got me thinking a lot more about how incredibly key the performance of Mark Addy as King Robert Baratheon is in the first season. Yes. Because in a way, he is meant to be like the Gollum figure in that kind of equation. That like, here is someone who, when he got on the Iron Throne, you were kind of meant to understand he was essentially this like shining young King Arthur figure, you know, rescuing the country. And now he's just gone so totally to seed. Um, it, right. It, it's something that, you know, again, thinking about ways that uh, the storytelling prepares you for incredible darkness, uh, you know, you as a viewer are maybe expected to think like, oh, yeah, like, that's not a good thing for anyone to sit on there necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> Time to elect a parliament. <laughs> Some great stuff in the book just on, uh, you know, different people's kind of perspectives uh, with regards to Daenerys and how that kind of plays into the finale. Uh, I especially thought that uh, Peter Dinklage, in your interview with him, he had a lot of kind of interesting thoughts about, um, you know, some of the broader things going into uh, what would lead someone to turn in that direction. Uh, let's, let's hear what he had to say. Yeah, it's a tricky one, but that's what I love about this show because we love Daenerys. All the fans out there love Daenerys, and she's doing these things mm -hmm. for the greater good. Yeah. 
purification <laughs> of yeah. this place. Yeah. You know, it's freeing, freeing everyone um, for the greater good. You're going to hurt some some innocents along the way. Right. Unfortunately, um, it's what war is. Uh, Dave and Dan and I were talking about as these seasons are going along, it's these decisions made in war, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm. Horrible. And then the idea of like, did we make the right choice in terms of that? Uh, choices in war, choices you make in war. How much further would the war have gone on mm. if America didn't make that horrible decision? We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. We're back with EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. You know, it's funny, reading the final chapters of, of your book, um, you know, there's a great kind of synthesis of things happening because as we are kind of reading these final um moments for different characters in the show and of course the finale has you know little endings for each of the characters who we followed all along um in fire cannot kill a dragon we're also kind of getting these great um final thoughts from many of the actors and many of the people involved in making of the show for whom it had been you know for some of them a, a decade-long process um you know i'd be especially intrigued to know in talking to some of the younger people who'd been like kids when they started making the show, it must be so interesting speaking to them as people who have literally kind of grown up all in the midst of Game of Thrones. I especially like that Maisie Williams, I get the vibe that she's ready to like go and live in like a house by the coast for a while and like say goodbye to culture for a little while, which I kind of understand. But what was that like kind of speaking to some of the people who had been at the center of this and had literally sort of only known this Game of Thrones experience as they moved through childhood into adulthood. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not like, I mean, if you think about working a job for years and years and, and what it's like to leave that and how difficult it is and, and how many bonds there are there, I mean, just imagine if you'd grown up on that set. I mean, it becomes more than than a workplace. It becomes a second home and a second family. And, and I think that's one reason that you know that cast is so tight you know there's a lot of cast ensemble shows where there's lots of infighting and drama and 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 people snarking at each other especially after a show ends but you know, e you know even now a year later you know it's hard to find somebody on, on that show to to say something negative about the show and and uh and for the younger actors there's a there's a lot of insecurity in terms of going out into the world because you know, if you're somebody like uh, Charles Dance or, you know, one, one of one of the sort of veteran actors in the show, you know, you've had a career before, then you had Thrones, so they expect to have a career after. But if all you've been on is Thrones, you know, they don't know if they're going to be pigeonholed as that. They don't know if they're going to be getting other work or not. And, and, you know, and even ones who had other work when the show was on the air, it's like, 
yes, but that was during the off season that I always knew I had thrones to come back to. I don't know if I'm going to have something to come back to, you, you know, you know, again, certainly not anything I'm going to like as much as this anymore. Yeah. It, it was funny just like thinking about how with some of them, they've been getting to the point where it was like shoot game of Thrones, go make an X-Men movie or shoot game of Thrones and, you know, go do another production. Um, it's just, it's such an interesting experience to think about um, and seems pretty unique to me. Again, this kind of goes back to something we were saying in an earlier podcast, but I do think that, you know, whatever else you feel about um, the showrunners uh, and their decisions in the later half of, of the show, um, there is some of that kind of, you know, Harry Potter movie casting kismet involved if you cast people who are really good at playing those characters when they are very, very young and still good at playing those characters when they are totally different people, you know, seven or eight years later. Um, another thing uh, I, I really liked in your book, uh, you know, Brienne of Tarth is a character who I think that in some ways people worry, you know, great stuff with her earlier in the show. Uh, also a character who didn't always seem super well serviced by the final season, um, but definitely someone who has this kind of larger iconography. Uh, and I thought that Gwendolyn Christie, who's always such an awesome person to hear from, um, she had some really interesting thoughts about the legacy of, of Brienne in the kind of aftermath of Game of Thrones. Um, let's hear what she had to say. What I loved is that her, in the last scene, she's at work. And I love that her last line is, I think ships take precedence over brothels. <laughs> that's what I want her to be remembered for. And that's how I like her being remembered, is a feminist icon Fair. and a practical woman. Yeah, and I, I love that that uh, that reflection of her on on her character. She's she's so so proud of that character and put so much of, of her of of her own strength into that character and uh she was you know just very happy where where her 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 character ended up there which seemed pretty perfect there yeah you know it's interesting that in your book james you kind of go really in depth about the decision to end game of thrones and what went into that you know what went into as we've discussed previously um you know seemingly cutting it off without expanding the world as, as much as the books had. Um, there is always going to be a part of me that wonders what would that last season have looked like had there been, you know, this sort of finale, this big epic showdown, King's Landing destroyed. And then similar to the Lord of the Rings books, if you'd had like a really protracted denouement where you kind of come to see like how, you know, all these things that happen don't necessarily just come to a screeching halt. Um, you know, I, I suspect on some level I may get that from uh, A Dream of Spring when that comes out at some far point in the future. Um, but it is just interesting to think of, you know, Game of Thrones started as a show which largely had to work within the restrictions of, you know, we cannot show things. If there's a battle, someone has to get knocked out. We need to fill a lot of time on these sets with actors who we have because we're running low on, you know, actual running time. Um, and then in the end, it kind of became a show that could really do these huge, big budget moments in a way that, um, you know, move the goalposts for a lot of other shows. I, 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 you know, it seems as if there are a lot more shows that are going to try to be like Game of Thrones in that way, in that kind of big, huge battle epic quality. Um, without the early seasons of kind of being able to experiment a, a little bit, and I, I, I do kind of, I, I get kind of bummed out about that. I mean, it's funny when we finished talking about Game of Thrones the series. I believe 
the first prequel was still in production. And then that didn't go through for all kinds of reasons, probably because these shows are really, really hard to make. But, you know, it's interesting that, you know, HBO, which is trying so hard to continue Game of Thrones, and there is another continuation series on the horizon. Um, I guess I'm wondering, James, do you think there will be another Game of Thrones level event in television ever again? <laughs> yes. It probably won't have dragons in it. But yes, I think there eventually will be. Um, the question is, is whether it'll be as big of a communal viewing experience as uh, as this one, because it, mm -hmm. this was really in the last days of linear TV, right? Yeah. You know, you know, as the streaming era you know began to really take over. So, so one of the great things about Thrones is was that sort of feeling of of every Sunday night, like everyone stopped and watched it, and then everybody talked about it the next day. You know, the, the whole cliche of water cooler show. And, and, and also, you know, the question of whether we'll ever have a franchise show this big that is allowed to do what the show did, which is end. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people feel that, that the show ended too early. Um, when the showrunners made that decision, uh, you know, the big fear, the big trap was staying on the air too long. You know, nobody had ever accused a show of intentionally ending too soon because there's all these market forces on anything successful to keep going. And so, you know, it's it's really tough to imagine in today's marketplace now any show uh, or any franchise being able, able to, to really go out at its peak again. Like you can't imagine a Marvel writer saying, you know, I feel like this should be the last one. And Disney going, yeah, okay, sure. Or, you know, or or, or, or even, you know, now HBO. I mean, AT&T has now purchased HBO. Do you think AT&T would, would let Game of Thrones end if it was on the air right now when it has their 7% annual dividend to like take care of? That's the thing. I mean, you know, one thing that in a way your book is really this extraordinary document of just how much television itself and uh, the cultural appreciation and expectations of television were changing while Game of Thrones was on to a certain extent because of things that Game of Thrones was doing. Um, I remember at some point in season six or season seven, uh, it, it, it had been a kind of somewhat dire summer for big blockbuster movies. Mm -hmm. And I recall just talking to some colleagues once and us realizing, you know, the issue, the reason why these movies are failing is that for a significant proportion of people who like seeing big fantastical things, their movie of the week now is Game of Thrones. And, and you know, it's, it's the best of both worlds. You know, it's able to do these huge things while also kind of, you know, dangling in front of you is continuation happening next week. It's just such a radical shift. I also remember there was one season, uh, I, I'm now, this is me butchering all these facts, so I apologize, <laughs> but I just think they recall one season of Game of Thrones when it debuted. That was like the, the year that suddenly HBO Go, like everyone was using all their parents' passwords all the time to watch Thrones. <laughs> yeah. And it was such another moment of realizing, oh, okay, like, you know, for, for a certain demographic, especially for younger people, watching this on HBO, on television, is no longer even like the basis for how you experience this. It is entirely on this kind of streaming service. Um, and as you said, you know, Thrones as a, transitional sh as a transitional show, you feel like now we're in the aftermath of that. And I, I wonder how a show like that would even manage. You do mention in your book 
the cross-comparison of the other genre series that was hugely successful while Game of Thrones was on, The Walking Dead. And I was just so struck because while reading your book, there was the announcement about how, you know, AMC is quadrupling down <laughs> on The Walking Dead. I, right you know, you know, thank God uh, Dalton is... Dalton Ross, the great uh, Dalton Ross, our, our colleague, is the one who 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 covers Walking Dead because I I have I love to beat up so much on 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 that show <laughs> and how it's been you know run into the ground by AMC just kind of relentlessly run into the ground and uh, like in that announcement that in terms of you know the, the spinoff they're doing they announced they're doing a spinoff with Daryl and Carol. And that is how little that AMC gives a shit about the viewing experience. They announced Walking Dead is going to end. So there's a bunch of suspense about what's going to happen. And then they just ruin that suspense by telling you who's going to survive right. and, 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 and move on to the spinoff. Well, it's, and it's, it's, it's such a strange, you know, we're, we're not going to go too far down this rabbit hole, but, but, but it does connect back to what I think is very interesting about Game of Thrones because, you know, the, the nature of that announcement almost seems like a way to assure viewers like, hey, like, yes, we are ending, so get excited for that ending, but also, you know, the, the two kind of longest running characters will continue on. And, you know, I, I think the Walking Dead thing is its own business case study. Um, you know, it has way less viewers now than it used to have, but I think there is a sense that there is this core viewership that, that will now follow it anywhere. Um, the fact that Talking Dead still still sometimes gets a million viewers is probably evidence enough that AMC can still print money off of that. But, you know, I, I do think that it's just really interesting to think of the final season of Game of Thrones, a season that I, that, that I definitely had, you know, major issues with, was this six episode split over six weeks the intention was that every episode was going to be a five course meal um i don't know i just i find that to be admirable in a way and i guess i'm saying that i i, I miss it james i didn't like it but i also miss it is my is my <laughs> feeling about it am, am i part of the problem here i, I mean my sort of grand monday morning quarterbacking of the final season is if they had two more episodes and then they had split episodes four, five, and six into two episodes each. No, it's not even made any changes to them. But but each of those episodes are like around like 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 70, 80 minutes anyway. So 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 they're all like nearly the length of two episodes. And if you split them into two episodes, you A get people to give time to digest the first half they watched and anticipate the second half the next week. So in a way, I feel like both halves would have been been more like responded to better yeah. if they had done that. And if there was just two more episodes in general in terms of the whole thing, in terms of content, to kind of flesh it out a bit. Um, I, I, I feel like the whole thing probably would have, would have, would have landed better. I like what you're saying. Cause I think that even then, you know, um, uh, in speaking to someone like uh, Natalie Emanuel, um, there's the recognition that like, oh, there's someone who had, you know, good narrative real estate in earlier seasons who in the final season, the death of her character is meant to be a huge thing for Danny. But we as viewers at that point, were kind of like, I, we haven't seen you guys talk in a while. I, I do wonder if, yeah. you know, 
that was probably that was probably the, the most obvious scene that that should have been in there. yeah and it's just you know it, it it goes back to you know when the show was really firing on all cylinders there was this sense of like it's not just a it's not just an ensemble it's an ensemble of ensembles and you know each twosome and trio kind of has their own unique quality to it, it you know in kind of losing that quality in the last season is there something you lose that you can't necessarily gain back with huge action scenes um you know all this and more i think james you cover it really effectively in a way that certainly for me you know i was kind of at a point in my thrones experience where i felt like okay the show was the show uh, I still Google every day to see if Martin has any news about Fire and Blood too, and and also Winds of Winter would also be good. But I'm not holding my breath. I just want I just want more Fire and Blood now. That's all I ask for. Um, but even so, I, I did think that um, there's a real graceful quality to in reading Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon. I do think that um, it helped me kind of come to terms with the show's ending uh, in a lot of really interesting ways. Um, you know, we are over a year out from it now. Feels like it's been ten years. Frankly, a lot of a, a, a lot of a lot of things have happened. Um, but uh, you know, in general, as, as you were speaking to some of the cast and creators, um, what were some of the final thoughts that you kind of really responded to, or uh, some things people said about the larger nature of, of the show that you felt like really got to the core of uh, the experience? Yeah, there is a lot of really. The last chapter of the book has is just ensemble of sort of goodbye quotes, and there's a lot of really poignant ones in there. Um, I actually do like one that Benioff said. He talked about this, you know, which because it gives a sort of cinematic quality to the show ending. He talked about this moment uh, after uh, the final season wrapped, and they had a cast party, and then they all went back to his his house uh, in in Northern Ireland and it's like on the beach and it was, you know, early in the morning, um, the sun was starting to rise and there's these, uh, you know, young actors, you know, now not, not so young, you know, you know, playfully like rolling down the hill, you know, almost surely like drunk out of their minds, <laughs> you know, and he's sitting there, and he's just thinking, you know, this was a really good job, and uh, and 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 I thought that that, that was that that was very sweet. Um, uh, I, I think my my favorite goodbye was um, from Ian Glenn, who played Sir Jorah, who who gave this really nice. Um, well, hey, let's just go ahead and and play it because we have it. What we do is basically ephemeral. We move fairly swiftly as actors. We're quite. You know, we're very used to getting lost in something and then forgetting all about it and getting lost in something else. Something that lived with you for, for a decade and was the best thing ever um, to be involved in and perceived as. Um, that is pretty special and uh, I'll never, uh, you know, till my dying day, of course, it will be, um, you know, the most exceptional acting experience and the most amazing support, the most brilliant crew, where anything was possible, where there was great friendships and great deal of love for what we were doing and each other, and nothing will ever compare to it, and nothing will be like that, ever. Nothing will ever be like that again, ever. And, uh, and yeah, I, I love that quote because it kind of gives you a sense of, of the kind of aftershocks that they were going through after the show ended, and had moved on to other jobs and kept on having these, 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 these kind of waves of kind of loss 
over over missing thrones which which i feel like like a lot of people who were fans of the show had as well um so yeah that, that was that was a really nice moment um you know james what comes across most of all in the book i think is uh you know it's kind of a privilege to once again get to share in your experience of covering the show um you know I've gotten to experience that as a reader of your stuff on EW.com, as a reader of, of, of the stuff you were doing for a magazine, and as someone who would just like slack you all, all the time with <laughs> Game of Thrones related thoughts. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, for me, it really stands as a monument to what it looks like when somebody does cover a project as in depth as it can possibly be covered wealth of details, wealth of information, um, wealth of interviews with people who are all clearly able to speak um, really candidly and in a, in a really in-depth way. Um, these are all things I don't, I don't necessarily think are hugely in evidence in a lot of pop culture reporting now for all different kinds of reasons, just given the nature of how fast things kind of have to move. Um, so it was just uh, such a privilege to get to read uh, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon. When's the next book coming out, man? What's coming up? What's coming up next? Uh, what am I, George R.R. <laughs> Martin now? You're, you're like already bugging me for, for the next book. Um, <laughs> you know, there, I'm done with book writing for a while. I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to just focusing on EW. And of course, we have, uh, you know, House of the Dragon, uh, the Game of Thrones um, Prequel coming out, uh, you know, George R. R. Martin's Winds of Winter coming out. Uh, we'll have some outtakes in the book, things that uh, I had for the book that didn't end up in the book, and I'll be uh, rolling those out on on EW.com oh, over the next coming months. This is your kind of metaphorical surpounce scenes that you're going to be releasing yes, on yeah. EW.com. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think my, my favorite one was um, director uh, Michelle McLaren. Uh, talked about how she had to go out and meet uh, wolves uh, to film a scene with dire wolves. So she had to go like out to like this wolf farm in in Michigan and and be introduced and make friends with wolves. And, and it was it was this great sort of thing, but there wasn't really a place for it in the book. I didn't have anyone else for that particular moment. So um, there's there, there's a lot of things like that little 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 outtake orphans. Uh, that uh, that I'm I'm looking forward to to rolling out, but you know it's it, I, just overall I just want to thank um, like all the people that have listened to this podcast, all the people who, who've read the coverage, all the people who bought the book, um, you know, or had something to say on social media or 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 whatnot. It's been a real privilege to to cover the show. Um, There's a lot of hard work and also some you know a degree of luck in terms of terms of getting in there at the right place at the right time and. Uh, you know, it's uh, the show has been, you know, real incredible journey. You know, as as an entertainment reporter, it doesn't really get any better than than covering something like this. Yeah, I'm just ending this really grateful and uh, you know hoping that uh, you know readers got uh, as much out of the coverage as uh, as I enjoyed sort of putting into it. Well, this reader definitely got a lot out of it. Uh, and I know, James, we're all really grateful to you for your great coverage on the show. Uh, Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, the untold story of making Game of Thrones. Uh, not just the cherry on top of the Sunday, but indeed a whole new Sunday to enjoy as far as James Hibbard getting in under the hood of what made Game of Thrones tick. As James said, thank you everyone for listening to us to this little extra special mini series limited edition version of EW's Game of Thrones Weekly. Uh, love to hear from you. Tweet at us. He's at James Hibbard. 
I'm at Darren Franich. Let us know what you think about the show. Uh, this is not by any means the end of the Game of Thrones experience as far as EW's coverage of it goes. We, we want to hear what you think. Uh, give us a rating. Give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, Game of Thrones, and the official untold story of the epic series is out now from Penguin Random House. Cannot recommend it enough. Uh, available wherever you get your books. We're going to finish up this week with a clip from the audiobook narrated by Fred Sanders. And for now, James, once again, our watch has ended. With no more words left to write, I asked that traditional final question for when something popular and influential concludes. What is its legacy? It's probably not possible to sum up the contribution of Game of Thrones to the world. The series had such an enormous and varied impact on so many millions. But striving for the impossible was always the point. Brian Cogman, co-executive producer. The legacy of the show? It's too soon to tell. When you're writing an addendum chapter to this oral history for the 10th anniversary edition, then you can tell. David Benioff. It would be fun if it were like when you're watching Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where people are still watching it 20 years from now and going, look, that's a young Alfie Allen, and that's a young Sophie Turner. It would be really fun on a personal level to know we had a helping hand in launching those careers and other actors who aren't so young, but we gave a boost. Dan Weiss. I hope people keep watching the show. I hope kids who are the age of our kids now grow up and watch the show and take from it what they take from it. Nobody owns the future of what they make. Once you put something out there, it's not yours anymore. It doesn't belong to the people watching it now, either. In 20 years, there will be a whole new group of people, and they'll either watch it or they won't. If they do, the reaction might be very different from your reaction. So I hope they watch it, and I hope they like it.